joining me today. I've got my friend Philip Van Dusen from Verhal Brand Design here with me today. And I'm really excited to dig into branding and all the fun projects that he's got going on. So Philip, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Valerie. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah. So, um, so we met a few weeks ago at a conference and, um, it sounds like you've had a pretty busy spring since then. Um, I'm excited to dig into some of that. I'm also excited to dig into some of your background in branding. Um, and just, I know that you've got from hearings with other interviews you've, you've done, and um, just in some of our conversation, I know that you've got just a wealth of knowledge. So uh, just want to thank you in advance for, for sharing some of that. Um, why don't you tell um, our listeners and any, anyone who's kind of being a fly on the wall to this conversation a little bit about uh, what you're all about and what you are really excited about doing in the world? Sure. Well, I've had a 25 plus, I'm a gray hair, so I've had a 25 plus year career on both the agency side and the client side of the street as a senior creative leader. And so that gives me kind of a unique perspective in the fact that I've been able to see both sides of the street there. And um, I actually have my uh, master's degree in painting. So I started off as a fine artist and a wow. fine art teacher and then fell into the the apparel industry by starting my own t-shirt company and then worked my way up through a number of fashion companies. Um, towards the end of my fashion career, I was a VP of design at Old Navy. And then I made the jump over to the agency side of the street and became an executive creative director at a number of global agencies. And um, then made the jump back over to uh, become VP of design at PepsiCo and then uh, I went out on my own. I just kind of had it with the whole big, you know, Fortune 100 company branding thing. Big machines. <laughs> yeah. And I just decided um, I really wanted to do my own thing. And so I started a, uh, I also saw the agency um, kind of paradigm shifting in the, in the industry a lot. And that's maybe something that we could talk about. Yeah. But so I just started, to, I started a, a virtual agency, a consultancy where I use a, a range of partners and build teams for specific projects. And um, so I've been doing that for about six years. The company's called Very Hell Brand Design. And to market that agency, I started a YouTube channel and a newsletter. And so I dove deeply into content marketing. And that's how I got have built my agency and gotten my clients. And along the way, I've kind of gathered a community of creative professionals who um, I, you know, share, educate, mentor, um, help grow and navigate creative professional careers. And everything I do for them is under the, uh, the name Brand Design Masters, which is on my hat for people who are watching it on video. And um, I have a Brand Design Masters podcast, a Brand Design Masters Facebook group, and uh, a Brand Design Masters Guild, which is a mastermind group. So that's kind of, that's kind of my shtick. Oh, and I work with clients, obviously, now. So now yeah. I'm working with the small, small to medium-sized businesses, generally up to a, like 100 million a year. Um, because I really enjoy working with companies where I can move the needle much quicker than I could with when I was working with the PNGs and the PepsiCo's of the world. Yeah. Well, it's cool that you've got like the, the, the giants experience, you know, seeing some of these more global brands and 
obviously I'm sure that all the red tape that comes with those types of brands. Um, I'm curious, like, do you feel like you were, uh, you mentioned like with smaller companies, you can move the needle a little bit faster. Is that just because you're working directly with decision makers or there's less logistics or less breadth of like how far that brand decision reaches? Um, what's been your experience there? Uh, all of the above, really. Um, I think, you know, the teams that you're working with are much smaller. There's a smaller range of decision makers. You don't have um, in numerous numbers of divisions that are weighing in on things. Um, there's considerably less consumer testing. So when you are developing an identity or a package design or, you know, something like that, a lot of times you would take it to uh, you know, quantitative and qualitative consumer research, which can take a long time. And uh, so it's just a lot more manageable. And the other thing that I really, you know, that I really loved about working with big companies was the, the strategic acumen that they went through in order to do what they do. Yeah. And that's been, you know, developed over decades and decades. And they do what they do really well. But what I was seeing was that there are small to medium-sized businesses out there that don't that could hugely benefit from that sort of uh, strategic um, branding work, but didn't either have the budget or the understanding of how much it could really benefit them. So what I did when I went out on my own was I took all of those strategic processes that I worked with that I did for larger companies. And I kind of scaled them down into a much more manageable set of tools and processes that I can educate small to medium-sized businesses on and leverage for their businesses using the same sort of processes that I did for these huge companies. And then they can get the benefit of that kind of work. Um, so that's really what my passion has been is kind of take the, take the fortune 500, you know, budget processes and make it available to the small to medium sized business owner. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's cool. Um, I'm curious, like, is there something that you really miss from being in that world with fortune 500 companies that you don't have now? I miss flying around on a Learjet. That was fun, <laughs> you know, um, when I was in the fashion industry, I used to fly all over the world and, and shop for a living. So yeah. that's what I, I did. I, you know, stay at five-star hotels and shop for t-shirts and fly around. And that was great. You know, um, I also really loved working with, I managed in some cases, pretty large teams of creative people. And I really loved mentoring and growing and overseeing and inspiring, um, groups of creatives. I think maybe that's because it, it pulls on all the strings that of teaching that I started yeah. off loving. Um, so the, the teams of people that I work with now are much smaller. Um, but then I get all my teaching yayas out with my brand design masters community interaction say. and going live and stuff. So it's kind of just like I've shifted to a different. different. Yeah. Do you feel like there's something that fortune 500 companies could learn from the smaller and mid-sized businesses that you've experienced? Like, yeah. What do I mean, you feel like they're missing? Well, one of the things that I think that they could do really is they could build smaller autonomous teams that have um, decision-making capabilities in order to move projects forward. 
And I have seen time and again, large companies just having a complete inability to get out of their own way in how they can innovate. Um, I'll give you a great example. When I was um, just starting off working for PepsiCo, I went down to Plano, Texas, where they were having um, their annual product innovation uh, gathering. And there were, you know, hundreds of PepsiCo executives and, and food developers there and stuff. And they were basically kind of introducing all of the innovative, uh, you know, snacks that they had come up with and um, proposing them to the executive teams of PepsiCo. And so I went down there and it was my first week with the company. And I was like, oh my God, number one, I was the VP of salty snacks for design. So I love Fritos, Doritos, Cheetos, all those great for you foods that make my engine run. And so I went down there and they had tables and tables and tables of really cool, interesting, unusual new snacks. Like, you know what, you know, Frito-Lay does, right? They'll take like a Frito and they'll add barbecue to it and turn it into a twisty, you know, thing. And then it's like, it's totally new and delicious, right? (laughs) Well, they had like some insane stuff I can't talk about, obviously, but they had about over a hundred innovative products. Yeah. And I was like, you take any dozen of these and you can have a overnight, a two, $500 million year business, right? Mm-hmm. And, but here's the thing, PepsiCo is such a gigantic company, like gigantic, gigantic. And so they, unless they could take a product and put it into, um, put it in the store and have it be a billion dollar business in six months, they weren't interested in it. And so there was, there were hundreds of these incredibly valuable, innovative products and foods and stuff that any small business would die for getting their hands on um, because they were, they were head turning, you know, and they, and they just couldn't get it together to bring them to market. And I was, that was, it was like my first week with PepsiCo and I was like, oh my God, you guys, you're frustrating the hell out of me already. (laughs) And so anyway, so that's one one example. Man. Oh gosh. Now. Okay. On the flip side, like what's probably one of the biggest brand lessons that a small to mid-sized business could learn from these big giants of companies like PepsiCo? Yeah. One of the things that I do in my agency now that um, I was, when I when I started working with this size company, I was pretty shocked with how I found there was a a huge lack of knowledge of their competitive set. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things the large companies do is the first thing out of the gate that you do is you do a competitive audit of who's in the space, who's your competition, where, you know, what's their brand positioning, what part of the market are they trying to occupy, et cetera. And smaller companies like never do this. I mean, they may know one or two competitors websites and they might go on it like once every couple of years, but they have very little understanding of the fact that they are not alone. They are not alone in the marketplace and they have to be very intentional about what space they're trying to occupy in the market, both with their products and services, but also with their customer avatar, also with their communication, also with their pricing structure. Right. And lots of companies have never done a competitive audit. And when you, you show them one, they're like, Oh my God, this is amazing. You know, and that's, that's one of the things I love about what I do now. Cause you yeah. can like impress the hell out of companies with like <laughs> basic stuff, but 
but it's also incredibly eye-opening to them is they suddenly they suddenly see five or six of their competitors compared to each other on a set of criteria apples to apples and they suddenly realize where they are performing and where they are not or where they have huge opportunities and i get super stoked about that like i absolutely love that activity in in doing that for clients now because they you see the light bulbs go off with them and 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 what they can you know because the smaller companies are very entrepreneurial so when they see an opportunity they see something they can fix or 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 develop or grow into, they get like super jazzed. And I love being able to be the one to facilitate that. Yeah, that's great. I It's it's interesting, the branding side of things, uh, I feel like, gosh, my mother-in-law just referred someone the other day to me who wants help figuring out some branding for her jewelry business. And it's just a side hobby thing. But I just warned her, and I don't know what your experience has been, at least with me, I found it's very difficult for people to translate what's in their head into what their brain actually ends up looking like. So all the the logos and the colors and the fonts and all the tone, there's so many subjective things when it comes to branding that when somebody's just starting off, it's so hard to communicate their ideas over to a designer, for example. And then uh, to make decisions about which direction they want to go with it and all that. So I'm curious if you've experienced that. Um, If you haven't, give me your tips as to how to avoid uh, some of the confusion with some of these folks. But um, also, do you have any advice for people who are kind of at those beginning stages? They don't really know what their brand is yet. Mm -hmm. They know what they want to do, but they don't fully know what their brand is. Yeah. The, the biggest advice that I give my clients is it's not about you. It's about your customer and it's about the marketplace. The customer has a level of expectation of what they expect you to look like, what they expect you to, how you should communicate with them, what they, what they expect you will give them to solve their problem. And that is the biggest challenge for smaller companies is that they some, they very often get stuck in this objective. You can judge design either subjectively or objectively. If you judge it subjectively, it's a question of whether you like purple or not, or whether you like, you know, pictures of ponies or leafs or whatever it is you're going to put on that identity. And it just becomes a beauty contest. And when there's a beauty contest between you and your client, the client will always win because they are paying the bill. Right. Right. So what you, what I do is I take my clients through an educational process where I, I teach and show them through examples that you need to build a a brand subjectively. It has to be based around strategy through the customer's eyes and through the marketplace's eyes. And as you, as you as you look at what a product or services service does, the industry that it's in, the customer that it has, many times there are established um, directions or norms around creative and design that have to be met as a point of parity and then have to be differentiated on as a point of differentiation in order to shine and show up and be memorable. But you have to 
educate your client to an extent that it's not about whether they like purple or green or that icon over this icon, that there is a customer who is going to be the one who's judging this. And you're not designing it for you. You're designing it for someone to respond to it and take an action or buy. And that's driven by something that's more strategic and subjective. That's great. Yeah. It's, it's so hard and, um, you know, getting, getting people to kind of, kind of think that way and get over the emotions of, well, but this is what I really like. I mean, it's, it's, I'm sure you come up against that, that wall with people a lot and getting them to, to get past their own emotions and out of their own way a little bit. Yeah. And um, you never, you never totally win, you know, Valerie, I'm not no. saying that you, know, you show them a PowerPoint presentation and they're like, Oh, I get it now. And yeah, know, give me what yeah. I need. They still, it still enters into it, you know, uh, their subjectivity. It might, help, that, it might help inform a few decisions yes. along the way. And it helps you present your rationale for what you're presenting and why you're, why you're believing in what you think is right for them. Exactly. And because if you say, I'm presenting this to you because I like green leaves and then it's just like, well, I don't like green leaves and then they win. But if you say I'm presenting it to you because we're in the natural food category and green is, you know, one of the uh, colors that drives that category and leaves are one of the visual, you know, um, symbologies that are used in identities or packaging around this category. That's the reason why we are doing this. That's the reason why we chose this font. Bah, 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 bah. Right. Then they right. start to understand that there is a strategic underpinning to everything that you're doing. And you were thinking bigger than just what's pretty, right? Right. Right. That there's more below the surface for sure. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that I think a lot of people underestimate is because, you know, a logo, for example, or you look at somebody's website and it just, when it's, when it's wonderful and beautiful, it's, it often is just, it's so simple in its beauty. And it's very clear that, wow, that's amazing. And, you know, I think of like Apple, for example, it's just so simple, the little Apple icon everybody knows it. But to get to that Apple icon probably was this huge long iteration of, of logo options and branding discussion and all of that. And I, you know, but once you have your branding, you can kind of get off to the races in a lot of ways, but to get to that point, it's actually a decent process. It's not like you can just whip out a logo um, or whip out your branding in, in one sense. Um, and as I'm saying this, I'm also realizing like you and I both know that branding is so much more than just logos. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll table that for, you know, the next thought here, but, um, but it's, it's been a good reminder for me as I'm talking with people of just, there's so much foundational work that goes into things when you're working on your branding at the start. So, and if you think about, I'm sure you're familiar with Apple's first logo, which looked like a etching you know, with yeah. the guy sitting under a tree and like, it was very ornate and they went through obviously a number of iterations of their identity before they got to that very simplified one sure. Apple logo. So every brand starts and every, every brand evolves, Pepsi evolves, Coke evolves, even the ones that you think never do. You can look at their history over 150 years and they, they do every, every brand does. Um, but you have to put the stake in the ground in the sparnest place that you can to start off with anyway. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's always worth the time to invest in like making sure that you've got some of that foundational work done. 
And I think a lot of the small business owners, because, you know, I work with a a very similar kind of clientele of those small to mid size. And a lot of times they're just ready to like, they know what they want to do. They know they need a logo. They know they need these foundational things for their marketing and communications and whatnot. But what they really want to do is go do the thing. Um, And so a lot of times they rush Mm -hmm. the initial branding conversation. Mm -hmm. And then a year later, two years later, they have to come back to it. And for the small to mid-sized business, you don't always have the market share to be able to say, well, you know, if I change my branding completely a year in, of course, everyone's going to know and recognize me later on, you know, after I make the switch. And um, on my end of things, at least I know when we're creating social media content for people, like they need to see that stuff so many more times than you would think. Oh yeah. For that, for an impression to stick with them of, oh that's what Valerie does, or, or that's what Philip does. Like it takes people multiple impressions to solidify their understanding of what you do. So if you change your branding shortly after, like you're just kind of shooting yourself in the foot. So, well, and the other part of it is that it gets, the longer you wait, the more expensive it is yes. because you, you know, you buy a logo on Fiverr and then you start putting it on stuff and then you make haphazard color decisions or font decisions on every platform that you go on. And before you know it, in a year, you have a rat's nest of visual identity. And then you have to go back and you have to fix it all. Right. And it, and it, takes, <laughs> it all long, takes time and money. It, take, it takes longer and it's more expensive to fix it than it is to do it right in the first place. Yeah. But smaller businesses have a hard time, you know, kind of making that investment up front because they don't really understand it. But that's part of, you know, your and my job, Valerie, is to describe that pain process to them and say, this is what I'm trying, you know, it may seem like a big nut to crack at the beginning, but this is what I'm trying to set you up for. I'm trying to set you up for a, a clear visual brand identity that you're not going to have to change. It's not going to upset the apple cart three years from now. And you'll thank me. You'll come back yeah. and you'll thank me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So to my comment a few minutes ago about how we, you know, we both know branding is so much more than just your logo. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, what are some things that you've seen that are so crucial to branding that most people never even think of? Well, I have this, I mean, and there, there are things that, you know, some people don't think of, but that are opportunities that um, companies don't realize. I have this lead magnet and I've had it on my website for, I don't know, five years now. And it's still like super popular. It's called the nine design elements your brand absolutely positively needs. And it's just a little listicle of, of uh, and descriptor of nine different branding elements. And they include things like obviously the logo, the alternative logo, the icon, the word mark, font choices, color palette, but then also things like pattern. And I, I took this away from the fashion industry. Pattern is one of those things that is a wonderful visual branding element if you decide to establish and put your foot down around one and use it repetitively or texture yeah. for that matter. Sure. Apple Apple has you know the brushed metal texture. And if you look at that brushed metal texture on something, generally think of them. Even just a texture of a kind of, of a material right. brings their memory out of your head. And so- Pattern and texture are two things that are are big opportunities for smaller companies that they don't generally think about. Um, 
and uh, they can use it. You know, they can use it on their website. They can use it on social media banners. There's all different places, that, shopping bags, et cetera. There's right. all sorts of places that you can use pattern or texture or material that if you make a choice and decide to stand for it, it can be a wonderful visual cue for people to realize and understand your brand. And there are things like, you know, photography treatments, you can choose a particular way that you're going to handle photography or a particular visual element that you attach to every photograph that you use, yeah. whether that's a color or an overlay or some sort of, um, you know, a treatment of some sort. Um, sound branding, that's a whole nother thing. It's like a lot of companies don't understand that there are opportunities to use sound. And if you do so consistently, that's yet another um, kind of indicator or, or memory vessel that you are establishing with your, your customers. Then one of the biggest ones, and this is a hard one to do, mostly, usually it's just retailers and people who deal with physical products, but smell I was gonna is, say. <laughs> is one of the, it's one of the most indelible, um, if not, I think it actually is the most indelible um, kind of reptilian brain memory trigger. Yeah, memory trigger. And so if you have an opportunity to use smell, it can be huge. I'll tell you an example. I, I you know, was in the fashion industry and like I said, used to shop around the world and I used to shop Abercrombie and Fitch fairly often, Hollister, yeah. their family of companies. And when Abercrombie was first within its first few years of existence, that dates me, um, you would go into their store and you'd buy some stuff, t-shirts, some jeans and stuff, and they would get their shopping bag. And before they put your stuff in the shopping bag, they would spritz cologne in there or a smell of some sort. And then they put the clothes in there. And so you would smell it while they did that, while you were in the store, the whole store smelled like it for another thing. And oh, then I know what you're talking about. <laughs> and then when you got home, you would take your stuff out of the bag and you'd get that smell again. And next time you went in the store, you would smell the same smell. And it just, I bet if I smelled that smell now, I would probably go, oh, that's the Abercrombie and Fish scent, you know? But so there are a lot of different kind of uh, uh, triggers that you can use to establish real estate in people's brains. Yeah, I think, I mean, to what you're talking about, I mean, it's essentially like thinking through all the, all the five senses, mm -hmm. you know, how can you really engage people yeah. on any level there? And obviously in the digital space, you can't do the smell piece as much, but um, you know, every once in a while you can get creative with, you know, uh, even mailing out something to your top, top people, your, you know, new customers or new clients, oh, sure. you and know, you can and just spritz it with something, you know, yeah. I mean, fit. yeah, anything, anything there. And it's interesting because I've, I've seen a lot of people in the digital space shifting to sending something small, unexpected as a physical product. Mm -hmm. um, and because not, not as many people are sending things via snail mail, um, it actually has a bigger impact absolutely. as a digital company because it is a little bit different. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I think I, to be honest with you, I think that snail mail swag is the actual differentiating marketing material interesting? Or, or, or approach right now, because no right? one is because no one is doing that right for that, yeah. for that very reason. But here's the caveat, but it can't be cheap crap. 
because no one wants to get on the mailing list of four imprint and be receiving, you know, co beer koozies with weird no. things printed on them because no one, you know, you get that stuff when you're at conferences and then you get it home and you're like, don't even know what to do with it. And you feel bad right. about throwing it out. And it's just like, don't do that. Don't do I that. Mean it's it's amazing just the power of a handwritten note. It doesn't even have to cost yeah. a lot of money. I mean, I went to a new dentist last week for cleaning and the dentist herself and her front desk person both signed this, you know, little note card and you could see the two different handwritings. You could tell it was with a real pen. Um, I mean, just a simple little thing where I was like, oh, that small business owner, like she really cares about my business, you know? Mm -hmm. And so you could just as easily, like you're saying, spritz something or, you know, and cater to those, those five senses, even though most of your advertising might be online or, or yep. whatnot. So, so yeah, wonderful. So, okay. You have obviously seen a lot, uh, between these really large companies down to, you know, probably mom and pop, small, just getting off the ground and people who are really trying to figure this all out. I'm curious, like if you had any advice for somebody of just like, if you're out trying to get your branding under control, trying to get your marketing in a good spot, if you were to give someone advice for, Hey, here's, here's something you can do to get a nice quick win in your marketing today. What would you tell them? The first thing I tell smaller companies is don't try to be everywhere. And that is, it's, it's very hard to manage shiny object syndrome in today's digital marketplace, because there is always something popping up that everyone says is the next slice bread. Like to, yesterday it was, you know, it was Periscope. Remember Periscope, right? right. Or Vine, Vine totally went the way of the Stegosaurus or, you know, now it's TikTok and it's like every time, and then it's going to be the metaverse, right? Then it's going mm -hmm. to be you know, NFTs and web 3.0. I mean, it's just endless in terms of like what the shiny object is. So much. So I, my recommendation is like, choose a platform, show up there really consistently and really well. And yeah. take some time in thinking about what is the best platform to do it on for your particular business. It may be Facebook, depending on your avatar. It may be TikTok, right? It could be Instagram. It might be, um, you know, it might be Pinterest. Um, so, but show up, be super consistent, establish a foothold, build an audience, you know, provide a lot of value um, and then branch out from there. Yeah. Um, because if you spread yourself too thin, number one, it's very distracting and you, uh, and you're not going to show up well everywhere. Right. And it, it's going to do more to kind of, uh, dishearten you really. Cause that's the thing I see a lot is everyone, you know, like they want to have a podcast and they want to have a YouTube channel and they want to do, you know, a bunch of carousels on Pinterest on, on Instagram and, and they don't get any traction or any engagement. And they think that it's lost that they right. wasted all that time or they lose interest because they're not having any fun. Mm -hmm. And so to, to kind of, be choiceful, put your back into one platform is the smartest thing that you can do. Now, I'm going to go back to your quick win comment. Yeah. There are no quick wins in content marketing. There aren't. Content marketing is a long game. If it you is. want a quick win, buy a Facebook ad, right? Build a landing page. 
send out a beer koozie, right? And spritz it with some smell. No. <laughs> um, but so the thing I would say in terms of a quick win, it would be to um, decide what that platform is going to be. Yeah. Right? And it takes a little bit of research in order to figure that out. And one of the things that you can do in order to figure that out a little easier is do a competitive audit because your co your comp competition is showing up on some platform really well. And if you know where they are showing up very well, it's kind of an indicator that that's where your, your avatar is. Yeah, you don't have to necessarily reinvent the whole wheel. Exactly. Just pay attention. Yep. Yeah, I think, I think the biggest thing is... Um, you know, when it comes to whether you're figuring out your branding or like you're saying, just take a, step, a minute to kind of evaluate what's going on in your, your industry and in your competitors, all that requires a step back. And so right. often we're just so quick to just jump ahead yeah. uh, and we're, we're impatient to get moving. Um, and so I think it's just a good reminder to me too. I just, I just love talking to people like you, because it's just a reminder that like, you don't have to be just in it right away. Like taking a minute to step back, evaluate things, put some, some thought into it. It just can be really valuable. Um, you know, personality wise, like I'm a doer. I love checking things off a box. I'll think about something for a little bit, but then I'm like, let's get moving, you know? Um, and I have some people in my life that are big thinkers they just sit and they dwell on things forever. Um, and sometimes that can be frustrating to me. So um, I think there's, you and I probably both understand like there's a balance, right? Like you can't just sit and evaluate for forever at the, at the sake of not doing anything. But at the same time, for people that are ready to just, you know, they're chomping at the bit, ready to go. It's like, okay, just take a second, make sure that this is what is right for you to be doing you know, sleep on it. And I think in digital marketing with the shiny objects everywhere, sometimes it's, it's just like, well, I'm missing out. You feel like right. if I don't get moving on this, I'm going to miss that boat completely. Um, and that's, that's just really not the case. It'd be better if you take that moment, really evaluate it, be ready to move on it and then take the step once you know, it's the right one. Well, and because for one thing, the, the people who are the innovators, the ones who are first to market with things are generally not the people who last anyway. And that's proven time and again, in terms of business, is that the fast followers, the people who leverage the wins of those innovators, or the, the, the experience um, of the market that they see from those innovators, those are the usually ones that really succeed and last longer. So there is a benefit of doing that. The one thing I would say, Valerie, which is important to mention, though, is that and this was the difference between doing big enterprise branding projects and doing small to medium sized branding projects is, you know, a decent, quick competitive audit can take two weeks. You know, we're not talking about like going into Basie's consumer testing with, you know, focus groups around right. the world. And, you know, we're not talking like three to six months of cooling our heels. We're talking about just like, you know, deciding who the competition is that we want to look at and doing an audit and making some determinations and observations and recommendations out of that. And it can happen in just a number of weeks, but out of that, you will make so much better decisions um, that I just, I try to, I try to hit my clients over the head with that reality very early on. And yeah. they usually are very appreciative. 
Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great thing because yeah, a lot of times we, it feels really daunting when you say audit, you know, it feels like, right. you know, I, I just, I hear audit. I think of, you know, it's tax season <laughs> and I just yeah. picture the like right. stack of, of stuff sitting under my basement steps that like, if I got audited, it would take forever to call through. Um, but yeah, what you're talking about is, is not something where you have to spend months and months and months. Mm-mm. It's something that can be very digestible and turned around fairly quickly. So you can make decisions. Um, so yeah, that is a really great, great distinction there. So, um, so Philip, I know you've got a few really fun projects going on right now. Um, you were telling me a little bit about your brand strategy 101. You want to tell, tell everyone sure. a little bit about that? Sure. And this links into what I was just talking about before in terms of objectivity and subjectivity and judging design. And that is when you base your design products in strategy, then they have a leg to stand on and they will perform better in the marketplace. And so one of the things that I've, I've done is I've developed a course called Brand Strategy 101 for creative professionals, but I've also had entrepreneurs take this course. Um, and it, it, it teaches you the basics of brand strategy, runs you through a, you know, half a dozen, maybe I think it's 10 major strategy tools, competitive audits, um, how you develop a creative brief, how you link that strategy to early creative development. And it, I gave it twice live. Uh, it was an eight-week course done once a week live uh, twice last year, and I've just um, moved that course now to on-demand video. So Brand Strategy 101 is now available, lifetime access, available immediately. You don't have to you know, cordon off eight weeks of time in order to take this class. Um, and then there's also uh, the ability to do Q&A with me, even if you are taking the, the video course. So if you go to philipvandusen.com slash BS101, uh, you can learn more about Brand Strategy 101. It's a great course. Awesome. Yeah. And we will uh, link to that here in the show notes as well. So it will make it really easy cool. for people to find that. Um, Philip, thanks so much for just kind of brain dumping with me a little bit about brand strategy and, and all things uh, big, small, and all in between. So um, thanks so much. And uh, if people want to find you online, you, you mentioned you've got a YouTube channel, you've got your website. Is there anywhere else you like to hang out? Yeah, so it's all under my name, philipvandusen.com. You can find everything on my website, YouTube, Philip Van Dusen, and then um, Brand Design Masters Podcast and Brand Design Masters Facebook group. Wonderful. Great. Well, thanks, Philip, for joining us today. Thanks, Mallory. I appreciate being on the show. If you liked what you just heard, please hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our future episodes. And while you're at it, go ahead and leave us a review. That not only helps us out, but it helps others discover great interviews just like this one.